All right, today more than maybe most of the others, it's important that you have a set of notes. So if you did not grab some sermon notes on your way in, I would encourage you to stand up and go get some now because there's things on there that I'm going to reference that we're not going to go through every bit of together that you're going to have to kind of take a little bit of time and look through. Last week, we started this new series about together. What, what does that look like? What does it mean? Why do we do this sort of a thing? And we looked at uh, a couple passages from Ephesians chapter 2 and chapter 3 that reminded us why we gather together, in particularly together. If you're a Christian, God has saved you out of your sin and into a family. You weren't saved to be a, an individual Christian on an island alone in your faith. You were saved to be a part of something bigger than yourself. You were not designed to live life by yourself on your own. We were always intended to live as a part of a community of believers. And so we now belong to a group of people that's not defined by what the world categorizes things as. We belong to a group of people that's not defined by our, our, our language, what color our skin is, where we are on the map. We're defined and our identity is wrapped up in Jesus himself. And if our identity is wrapped up in Jesus, last week especially, we looked at the truth that our identity is wrapped up in the church. But I know you've heard it, maybe even felt it in your own heart, that there's some resistance to this understanding and this truth. It's tempting for, for people, maybe you and me sometimes, especially in our individualistic culture today, it's tempting to believe that we can be right with God and not be in fellowship with the church. And you've maybe heard that comment made by people, thought it yourself, or maybe you still think that. I hope today that you'll see from God's word that that's not an option. It's not an option to say you love God, but avoid the church. So if you say, well, I'm not so sure I agree with you, Rod. I would direct you to Ephesians chapter 5. And you can turn there if you want, but you don't have to. I'm just going to read it. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 and 20 through 27. You've heard this before. It says, husbands, probably heard this at weddings. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So Paul is talking about marriage, but he's saying that marriage is simply a picture of something deeper, isn't he? Marriage is a beautiful thing. God designed it from the start, and we're going to talk about that a little bit. But marriage is not the end all. It is a picture of what Jesus is doing in, with his bride. And it says, and this is the first point in your notes, Jesus gave himself up for the church. For the church. Now, certainly that means that he died for individuals, individual people that make up the body of Christ and make up the church. But Paul, I think here is specifically stating that Jesus died for the group of redeemed people that's referred to in the new Testament as the church. Now, a friend came up to me after last week's service 
and uh, we were talking about the concepts that, that I had preached on. And he made this statement that I think is, is significant. And he said, you can't love God if you don't love the church. I don't know that I'd, I'd ever heard it put quite that simply, but I think there's a lot of truth to that. He said, you can't love God if you don't love the church. And my mind immediately went to the book of First John. Chapter 3, verse 17. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, brother signifying fellow believer, in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? 1 John 4.20 If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, again, brother signifying fellow believer, uh, he hates his brother, he's a liar. He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So I think that's an accurate statement that was shared with me. Now, God's intent from the beginning was to display his glory to the physical and spiritual realms by using the church. We talked about that last week too in Ephesians 3. So when somebody tells you that they love God, but they don't want to gather with the church, with as much love and patience as you can muster up, I would encourage you to remind them of this passage from Ephesians 5 and remind them of why Jesus died. Because it says it so plainly. Christ gave himself up for the church. That church is the redeemed group of God's people. I would also maybe follow up with some some other questions. You could ask this person who's saying, well, I love God, but I, I don't want to be a part of a church. You might say, well, you know, do the people in the church sin? Well, sure. Well, do you sin? Of course. Okay. Well, just, did Jesus die for your sins? Yeah. If, if I put my faith and trust in him, absolutely. Well, did Jesus die for the sins of the people in the church that you don't want to be a part of? Well, Sure. Because anyone who calls on the name of the Lord should be saved. So then my next question would be, you you got to go with it at some tact and gentleness, but my my next question would be, well, if those people are good enough for Jesus, why aren't they good enough for you? It's it's obvious, though. We get it. The church is full of, of sinners. I'm not, this is nothing new. You're looking at one. I'm looking at many sinners. It's true. The church is full of sinful people. But we're slowly and surely being conformed to the likeness of Christ by the Holy Spirit that's dwelling in each person. And I've learned that over the years. That if if I have a brother or sister who maybe I don't agree with, it's not my job to force them to my point of view. Because, newsflash, I'm not always right. (laughs) My wife says amen, yes. So that's not my job. My job is to pray for them, to love them, to try to walk in their shoes and see their perspective and let the Holy Spirit that we're both claiming is within us do the changing of whoever needs to change. So if, it, if a sinner who is slowly being changed and conformed more to the image of Christ, if that's you, if that describes you, you fit right in. And we covered most of that last week. And it's up online, so if you haven't heard it, go listen to it. Uh, just side note too, John David's message and Paul Aiken's message, 
that were a few weeks ago, they're also online. And you can download those if you want to listen to them. But today, hopefully with fresh eyes, I want to tackle this question of why we gather. Why do we do this? Why do we get together? Well, the simple, simplest version is we get together on Sundays because we believe Jesus rose on a Sunday and that's why we celebrate and that's why we gather. That's this, that's why we call it the Lord's day. But I want to dig a little deeper and ask, well, why do we gather at all? What's the point? And if you kind of make it into a more uh, self-centered question, maybe we'll say it that way, you could ask this, well, what does it benefit me driving my family to a church building and gathering with other people when I could just turn on the television and listen to really good preachers and hear really good music without going anywhere? What's the point of all of this? Where better to start than at the beginning of church history in the book of Acts, right? After Christ had ascended and went back to heaven, to the right hand of God, he sent out. We tackled that at the end of Matthew 28. He said, go and make disciples. Okay. So the first place that we see that really happening is in the book of Acts. I mentioned John David and brother Paul Aiken sharing here recently. I, th- I thank God for those men and their love for the Lord and your love for the church, for this church specifically, because they preached, I had a little extra time to prepare for this sermon series. And so most of the time when I do that, uh, I've got four kids, 10 and under at home. So not a lot of quiet there. So a lot of times I study hunkered down here in my office in the basement at church. Okay. So if you come in through the week, a lot of times you'll see me there. If you live in this community, you have struggled with and faced the looming reality of horrible internet connectivity, right? You just, you can't get it. You're searching for signal or, well, here, we, I couldn't get the, the internet. We have satellite internet and then it just, it disperses through wifi and I couldn't get anything to work a couple, a couple weeks ago when I was preparing for these messages. I just could not get any internet connectivity and no matter how many times I, I unplugged and plugged it back in and, uh, tried to reset all of these things, it was not happening. And just, I don't, my wife can attest to this. I don't know if you're this way, but when electronics don't do like what they're designed to do, I start to get irritated. Like you have one job, just do your job. And so it wasn't going right. Have you guys ever had a day like that when just things just, nothing seemed to go right? Well, that was my week a couple of weeks ago. And then God in his graciousness, the spirit slowed me down and reminded me of some good teaching that I've heard before. And I decided, well, maybe instead of being frustrated, I should just listen to what the Lord is trying to tell me through this. And I, I found and heard something completely predictable and absolutely commonplace. The Lord began to speak to my spirit in the quiet moments, and he began to show me a better way. So... God used the lack of internet connectivity to shape my understanding of what the early church did and does. Because when I had no internet, which a lot of my study tools are online now. And so when I had no internet, guess what I was forced to do? Just read. 
All I could do was just read. And the Spirit used it. I read through the book of Acts multiple times. Because I had nothing else to do. So I read through the book of Acts. And I began to write down every instance when the church did something. Okay? Every time the church did something. And it, it was some from seemingly insignificant things like just uh, praying for a missionary to really significant things like one of the church members died for their faith. And as I was able to read through this book several times in a row, I began to see a couple patterns emerge. Some patterns, some regular things come up. And the first one that I'll mention is this. The church in the book of Acts was passionate about spreading the gospel. No question, they were passionate about spreading the gospel. And this included planting churches and sending out missionaries, but it also included just more simple things like gathering together to pray or taking up a collection in order to help another church. They were passionate about spreading the gospel. And I found that they not only prayed and participated in spreading the gospel, but oftentimes, if you read through the book of Acts, you'll see this, they were persecuted for spreading the gospel. So not only did did they pray about spreading it, participating in spreading it, they were persecuted for spreading the gospel. And for my sake and your sake, I feel the need to point something out with that in mind. In no place in the book of Acts will you see any Christian or church pray that God would take away their persecution. That's significant. Instead, they prayed for boldness. They prayed for perseverance to keep preaching the gospel no matter what the outcome was. They didn't pray that God would make their life easier. They prayed that he would make them more faithful. That's significant because most of the time, our prayers don't look like that, do they? My prayers don't look like that, do they? In the face of persecution or rejection or just indifference, people of God were devoted to preaching and spreading the gospel. And this should absolutely inform the way that we pray. Now look at, on the back, the back couple of sheets of your notes is what's listed as um, handout one. These, these are the, the instances that I wrote down. And this is every instance that I could see as I read through where the church did something. I highlighted some of the entries just to make it a little easier to stay together. Sometimes it was a member from a church. Sometimes it was a specific church that was doing these things. I tried to highlight the ones where it was talking about the collective body of believers. So just scan through that really quickly. And you'll notice the one pattern that I saw about how the church is is passionate about spreading the gospel in the face of persecution. And I saw another one begin to emerge too. And I think you'll see it in just a moment as well. As I begin to see this this next pattern come out, I thought, well, okay, I see this here, 
but I expanded my search a little bit. And so I, so I started looking through the rest of the New Testament. And I wanted to see if this pattern changed as the church began to grow and emerge. And I wanted to see if this any of these patterns changed. In fact, what I found was that they didn't decline at all. They actually increased. This pattern increased and became more obvious as we went. And I'm going to tell it to you, but I want to just make sure we all know this is not revolutionary to my understanding of, of the Word of God. You've heard this before. I read Acts and the subsequent letters to the church with this question in mind. What was the church doing or what was it being told to do? And so flip back to, I think, the beginning of the second page of your notes. There's a list. Take a few seconds and just glance over them. Again, I highlighted important parts of this. Look at, look at what the church was doing. Remember, we were asking, I was asking, what was the church doing or what was the church being told to do? Now, in our series that we're going to continue preaching on, we're going, to, we're going to actually tackle some of these things. Some of these things are going to be the force of what we, what we preach about as far as singing to one another and um, welcoming one another and preaching and those sorts of things. But do, do you notice, do you, do you start noticing a pattern here? I think that there is a obvious and widespread truth that we should be caring for one another in the body. Look at those verses. Look at the highlighted parts of those verses. Care for one another. Comfort one another. Be kind. Submit to one another. Bear with one another. Forgive one another. Exhort one another. Stir one another up to love and good works. Encourage one another. Pray for one another. Show hospitality to one another. Serve one another. Love one another. What's the common phrase here? One another. So let me say it this way. God designed the church body to care for one another. That's the second and biggest pattern that I saw as I began to study this without any study tools, just reading through Scripture. The church had a passion for spreading the gospel and the church cared for one another well. I was reading the creation story again not long ago. And in fact, our VBS uh, took us through part of the creation story this past week. And I noticed something particular that I hadn't really seen before and how it ties into what we're talking about this morning. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, God says something that is kind of astounding. Before sin ever entered the world, God said that something was not good. Anybody know what it was? It was not good that man would be alone. Now that's an interesting statement to me. So remember, this right God created Adam out of the dust of the ground. He didn't create Adam like he created every other animal. People are different. Human beings are different than animals. I feel like I need to say that in our culture today. Um, but he, he created him perfectly and everything was good. And yet God said, it's not good that man should be alone. This struck me and kind of confused me. But have you ever thought about that in relation to corporate worship? It's not good for us to be alone. 
that led me to, to some things, to some short phrases. And one is this, companionship conquers loneliness, right? It wasn't good for Adam to be alone. So God made him a helper out of himself. God made him a helper. Companionship conquers loneliness and community is superior to independence. That's, that's not a, that's not something that's praised in our culture today, is it? Individuality, independence, making your own way, doing it all by yourself, that is what's praised. That's the American way. So to say that you're dependent on someone else almost seems like we're weak. And yet from the beginning, God created people with this need, with this thing. So just to be clear, I'm not advocating that we eliminate individuality. I don't want us all to dress the same and look the same and talk the same and be the same. That's not what God designed for the church either. Um, he designed us to be a diverse set of people. And we should celebrate the diversity that's in our body. That goes against, I think, First uh, Corinthians 12, where it starts talking about the parts of the body and the function in the body. If everybody was a hand, we wouldn't know where we're going because we need eyes to see. So somebody's got to be the eye and somebody's got to be the hand. And Paul goes into detail. We need one another. And so I'm not saying scrap individuality. What I'm saying is, even though you may not like it or feel comfortable with being a part of a group, you were designed with an innate, indwelling need for the body of Christ, for other people, for community. And I, I believe God points this out in the very first person he ever made. It's not good that man should be alone. What's so incredible about this to me is that God said it before sin had ever entered, before Adam's heart was ever darkened by sin. When he enjoyed unbroken fellowship with the creator, God said it wasn't good. So that leads us to a couple of questions. Well, what was not good about Adam's experience with God? Was, I mean, he had unrestricted communion, walked with God in the cool of the garden every day. He didn't have this God-shaped hole in his heart that sin has brought about in the rest of us. So the question is, well, was God not good enough? Was God not enough for Adam that he needed something more? God created him, said that it was good, but when he created Adam by himself, he said it wasn't good. So, whoops, did God mess up? Was an error here? Did he, did he have to go back and fix it by taking one of Adam's ribs and making woman? No, I don't think that's the case. Let's think deeper about this. If we reflect on the rest of the creation process, we see that God was actually more than enough for Adam. That's why he created everything. That's why he created the earth. He created everything out of nothing. He didn't just use parts of other things to make something new. It all came into being by the words that he spoke. And so in understanding, well, why was it not good then? If God was enough, why was that a problem? There's a quote, I think it's in your notes, a writer at desiringgod.org, 
guy named John Bloom, I think helps us in this. He says the ultimate point was not that God wasn't enough for all of Adam. It was that Adam wasn't enough for all of God. One human could not enjoy God as much as many humans together. And so when it comes to seeing and savoring Jesus Christ to the fullest, I would echo this statement from Genesis 2.18 that it's not good for man to be alone. How many times have you come to church frustrated, down, lackadaisical in your walk with the Lord, and a brother or sister who is here helped snap you out of it? That happens regularly in a healthy church because iron sharpens iron. And so... Christians enjoy God to the fullest in community with one another. And I see this more and more in the New Testament. That's why God designed us to do life together. I think we most accurately reflect God's good design for the church when we enjoy Him together. And that's why it's not good for man to be alone, even in the congregation. We have confidence that we can have this kind of relationship with God because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And we talked about that at VBS this week, and it was a, a wonderful thing. We talked about the blood over the door in Egypt with the, Egypt, with the Israelites and the perfect sacrifice of the lamb. We talked about the tabernacle and the sacrifice of the priests, and we talked about Jesus and the one and only sacrifice that's good forever. And so I want to turn to Hebrews as kind of the main text for the day. Hebrews 10, verse 19. We're going to look at 19 through 25. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God... Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. How many of you have ever used the phrase, because I said so? Parents' hands are going up all over the place. Today's message is not, stop missing church because the Bible says so. That's not what I'm saying. I mean, it's kind of what I'm saying, but it's not what I'm saying. Because I don't think that would be super helpful if that's where we left it. If I just came up and said, the Bible says, stop missing church, the end. If we look harder at what these verses are saying, we see so much more than just a big, because I said so from the Lord, right? I mean, he says in verse 25, don't neglect meeting together as is the habit of some. It's not a suggestion. Don't do it. It's a command. Don't miss church if you can help it. But it's, that's not, that's not God just saying, well, stop missing church. There's a reason for it. There's a purpose in it. And he sets it up in a particular way. And if you look back at 
19, 20, 21, 22, 23 of Hebrews chapter 10, we see that we have this command because of Jesus' sacrifice. We are able to gather together regularly because of the blood of Christ, because he sits as our high priest. Through the tearing of his flesh on the cross, this verse says, through the tearing of his flesh on the cross, he has torn also the curtain in the temple, taking away the dividing wall between God and man, removing what was necessary for thousands of years in Old Testament and even some New Testament sacrificial system, Jesus' sacrifice has done away with that. And now, as our new and permanent high priest, Jesus cleanses sinners by his blood and removes the stain of sin through his sacrifice. All praise be to God. And because of this wonderful news, that's what sets up now what we're told to do. And I believe there's five things in these verses that we're told to do. Look at verse 22. Because of Jesus being our high priest and us being cleansed by his blood, we are to draw near to God with a clear conscience. Verse 23, we are to hold fast to the confession of our hope, the sacrifice of Jesus, hold fast to that confession without wavering. Verse 24, we're supposed to stir one another up to love and good works. The first part of 25 says, we're supposed to continue meeting together. Don't make a habit of missing. The last part of 25 says, encourage one another more and more. Because we've been covered by his blood, we can do these things. We should be doing these things. But look at how it's written. Look at the pronouns that the author of Hebrews uses. They're not singular. It doesn't say you. He says we, us, our. These are plural pronouns because they refer to more than one person. Not only that, the author here uses terms like brothers, sisters, one another, together. Guys, this text is supposed to be read with a group feel to it. Multiple people, togetherness. Why do we gather together regularly? What's the point of doing this? What can we get from physically gathering with the church that we can't get from watching TV? It's this, real community. Realness, real church. The church is not just a bunch of know-it-alls and better-than-thous. Some people think so. Unfortunately, some church people give off that impression, but that's not what we are. The church is actually a bunch of blood-bought and rough but redeemed people who constantly aim to point away from ourselves and to the one who can truly save. So let's apply this. What would it look like? What would it look like if we lived out the content of this passage in the context of the body of Christ? What would, what would it look like? So it leads me to some questions there in your notes. What would it do for your walk with the Lord if you saw a whole bunch of people drawing near to God with a clear conscience? Wouldn't it give you hope that your conscience can also be clear 
by boldly approaching the throne of God and confessing your sin based on the blood of Jesus? I know when you look around, you don't see perfect people. You know, we look around and we sometimes see each other's faults and issues. But man, when we see, when I see a brother or sister laying it down before the Lord, even though I know that they struggle and wrestle with these things, when I see them do that, man, it encourages my heart to do the same. What would it look like if our church did that regularly? What would it look like for your walk with the Lord if you witnessed people in the midst of immense personal trials and difficulties holding fast to the confession of their hope? Wouldn't it challenge you to keep persevering, to keep holding on without wavering? There's, brothers and sisters, there's people in this church, and there's people around the world who suffer more than you. And to have them in our mind's eye when we go through suffering is key. Pick up the book called The Fox's Book of Martyrs and start reading through it. You're going to start counting your blessings really quickly when you read that book. What would it do for your walk with the Lord if you saw a church body consistently encouraging one another to do good to each other? Because that's what... That's what it says in verse uh, 24 of Hebrews 10. Stir one another up to love and good works. What would it look like? What would it do for your walk with the Lord if you saw a church body really doing this consistently? So I don't know how often it happens, but have you ever walked into a conversation where people are talking and you walk into the conversation and everybody stops talking? It's a little uncomfortable. And it begin, you begin to think, well, what were they talking about? Unfortunately, there's too much of the time. It's probably something that they shouldn't have been talking about. Wouldn't it be so encouraging if you came into a conversation like that and instead of the conversation ending, they just wrapped you in and you realized that they weren't talking about the latest gossip about someone, but instead they were planning how to bless or serve somebody? Wouldn't that totally change how you see what the purpose of the church is? Guys, not just our church, but churches in America, seemingly in every area, have a habit of becoming preoccupied and upset about really lesser issues. And we begin to fight and quarrel the Bible explicitly tells us not to, and yet we find ourselves doing that. And how refreshing would it be if we came into these kinds of conversations? And instead of the gossip, it's, oh, hey, we were just talking about our brother who needs some help. Do you, would you like to be a part of helping them? Would you like to be a part of blessing them? Instead of perpetuating the idea that churches are just full of people who can't get along, what if instead our efforts were focused on how to bless our community and serve one another? The last question there, what would it do for your walk with the Lord if you were a part of a group of people who were known not by the way they tear each other down, but how well they encourage one another? Wouldn't that be refreshing? Wouldn't that be fantastic? Guys, there's nothing stopping our church from doing or being any of these things. Jesus Christ has done everything necessary for us to function in this way. Everything. 
in Christ alone, we have access to the Father. And since we have such a great high priest, it says here in verse 19, 20, and 21, because we have such a high priest, we can hold fast to our confession. We can stir one another on to love and good works. And we can constantly encourage people in our community. And we ought to be. When we do these things together as the body of Christ, the world then begins to see the wisdom of God lived out that we talked about last week in Ephesians 3. When the church body functions in this way, because of Jesus and his death on the cross, we have the ability then to encourage one another, not tear each other down, the ability to come boldly before the throne of God. Jesus has done it all. No, no one here is naive enough to think this will be easy. So I just want to make this last statement. We know that it's sometimes going to be harder to do this together. But I believe the Bible teaches us, God assures us, that it will be better together. The church is not going to always do it perfectly here on earth. But when we do it together, we more perfectly reflect who we want to be and who God has designed us to be. And so, brothers and sisters, as we continue in this series of what do we do when we get together, I hope that you understand and see, not in a legalistic, check the box, you know, off your list of things to do, go to church, knock those two hours out, now I can get back to doing what I want. Not church attendance in that way, but a vital part of a, of a growing faith community, that's what we are. Why do we do this together? Well, because God said so, but on a more real, genuine level, because he designed us to be this way. It's not good for you to be alone and try to run this race by yourself. We run it together, and we're better together. Let's pray. Lord, you have designed us to care for one another. I'm convinced of that from your word. And I pray that as a church we are more and more convinced of that. That we're designed to do this together, not alone. We need one another, even when we prefer to go it alone. Pull us up short, Lord. Help us to be sensitive to the needs of one another that we can see and encourage and, and love the way that you've prescribed the church to love one another. God, we can only function this way because we have a great high priest in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, if, if some or one today don't know that kind of love of the Father where we can go boldly to his throne, would I pray that you would save them. I pray that you grant them repentance and faith and that they would be saved. And so, Lord, those who are your people, who are part of the gathered church this morning, this community, Lord, I pray that we could set aside differences and rally around the truth and beauty of the gospel and that we wouldn't just be a lighthouse that stands still with the light, Lord, but, but we would be individuals who gather on Sunday morning and point our lights together, but then take our lights with us like flashlights throughout the week and shine it in the darkness wherever we go. And in doing so, Lord, we fulfill the great command 
of going and making disciples, but also, Lord, you draw us in to yourself. And we pray that you would do that this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.